0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Good afternoon and welcome. And what was that weird noise? (laughs) This is What Doesn't Kill You... Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, today, we're going to be talking about something uh, that came up a few months ago. Some of you may remember my interview with uh, Joel Macauer from greenbiz.org. Um, he's a guy that uh, follows interesting developments in sustainable businesses. And uh, we had a very interesting conversation about how McDonald's was kind of leading the way in uh, putting together something called the, glo- excuse me, the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Well, my friend said, the National Resources Defense Council, one of whom is on the phone waiting eagerly to speak with us. Uh, In fact, that would be Jonathan Gelbard. Jonathan is a conservation scientist and sustainable agriculture specialist for the National Resources Defense Council. Um, When the Global uh, Roundtable for Sustainable Beef came out with their initial um, criteria and guidelines for what sustainable beef would look like on a global scale, uh, the NRDC, of course, had some reaction to it. So, um, Jonathan, can can you, um, welcome to the program. First of all, thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a
1: pleasure. Um, let me just turn off my radio here a little bit. Okay, that's better. Um, So Jonathan, can you just give us a quick thumbnail of the uh, Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, just to like give us a little background on this?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, the Global Roundtable is a really important coalition of uh of organizations from the, the beef industry, from restaurants and retailers, and, and a few NGOs, because it really brings together all these different stakeholders for some good, frank, open discussions of the issues. And this is really important because there aren't that many opportunities just in life for ranchers, packing companies, buyers, and NGOs to all get together and, and talk about these issues. So, so it's, we're really, really excited about uh, the potential for this organization uh, to do some good things with the beef industry.
1: Well, yes, yeah, so was I when I first heard about it. But then I looked at the executive committee um, and I was kind of dismayed to learn that the president is from, J, uh, from JBS, that is the Swift Company in USA, which is one of the largest <coughs> beef producers, followed by the vice president from ELANCO, which is, of course, the big vet medicine uh, division of Eli Lilly Corporation. and then um, Gary Johnson from McDonald's, and um, Forrest Roberts from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And then it seemed like the only sort of and and then of course Sam's Club, Walmart, McDonald's, um, and it seemed like the only sort of NGOs, as you referred to, were Solidaridad, which I I don't know anything about, the World Wildlife Fund, and the National Wildlife Federation. There was nobody like you guys on this board, and I, I don't know, maybe that's inappropriate, but why do you think they didn't choose to have anyone from the sustainable community to join them on these issues?
2: I don't know if it's—I don't know if it's the fact that they didn't choose uh, to have to have folks involved, but but I do think it's time for more of us to get involved and really make sure that that this—not just the the global roundtable in itself, but this whole quest for more sustainable um, beef—realizes its potential and and its promise to do a lot of good for the industry in ways that will not only benefit our environment and our public health but really also help producers improve efficiencies and you know by reducing input input use and improving practices in a way that makes for healthier grass which in turn makes for healthier and more productive faster growing cattle
3: right so
2: so there's really a profound business case here yeah and and you know, it's really time for us to get involved and to make sure that this isn't just you know, McDonald's and some of these other companies putting a green bow tie on the unsustainable status quo, but really to do something that instead of just like rebranding coal, clean coal, to do something that would be akin to transitioning to renewable energy. For the beef
1: industry right I mean but that's what concerns me about this lineup of people who are in charge of it and then um you know I actually called them I called the the global roundtable for you know I said maybe you could send me some of the comments because they did have a comment period on their initial offering for the criteria for sustainable beef which is obviously the first step in deciding like on a region by region basis what will constitute a sustainable footprint and um you know they they weren't able to give me any of those comments um, um, and they certainly did not. And they they said that in a few months they will be posted anonymously. And I said, that's fine. Anonymous is good. No, they didn't want to do that, um, which, you know, right away sort of sent off some um, red flags for me. And then I also noted that the woman that I was speaking to is somebody that I had met before, um, Mona Wolverton, very nice, um, but works for the National Institute of Animal Agriculture, which I had given a talk to last year um, and where I did not um, make any friends with what I had to say about my business business message about, you know, sustainability is something that you can use to improve your bottom line, not necessarily to take away from it. And, um, you know, that seemed to fall on deaf ears. So I, I feel concerned that there are no, I don't really know what organization it would be. I mean, I'm not sure it would be the National Resources Defense Council that would be engaged in this, but isn't there a sustainable meat operation somewhere that could have joined this group?
2: Oh, I, I, absolutely, and and that's part of what inspires us to know what the potential of this really is. Is that you know over the past couple of years we have been engaged in in really really extensive due diligence to figure out how best to inform these types of processes. We've um, not only looked at what the science says about what are the impacts of a uh, beef production that we would like to uh help reduce and minimize like overgrazing and, and water pollution by feedlots and non-therapeutic antibiotic uses but also what is what are the solutions what are the proven best practices that have been shown to mitigate these impacts and also have uh offer benefits to to the economic well-being of producers and the stability of supply chains. Right,
1: because without that,
3: as
2: part of this, we have also um, looked for who is implementing these practices, who is, and management systems that are mm-hmm. better. And we have found that there are absolutely ranchers out there, and even feedlots out there sure. that are doing it right. Right, and these 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 leaders. Insist to us, they say, look, this stuff is not just good for our environment and better for our public health by protecting our antibiotics, but this makes for healthier soils that support healthier vegetation, that in turn support healthier and faster growing cows, which means more profitable operations. So, the challenge that we really face here is working with the Global Roundtable to develop systems to help producers get these improvements implemented on the ground. And we've also been listening to well, what are some of the barriers? You know, what's holding back change? And these are really, really important questions because we don't want to come to uh, a process like this and be seen as just some outside environmental group trying to force. Um, good practices on the supply chain we're, we're really trying to take a practical approach here and say okay you know what's holding you guys back what do you need to help get these changes implemented mm-hmm. on the ground and, and we're hearing responses like well you know first and foremost you know the economics of this industry are pretty tight and there's there's pretty high upfront costs to doing things like installing fencing for rotational grazing practices and water that helps keep cows out of the streams where they cause pollution and and so that they can get water away from the streams mm-hmm. um, which in, and and they can and and the ranchers can in turn use these water sources to help improve the distribution of cattle and the and and how forage is used on their ranch whether it's all used you know evenly and and, and efficiently or cows are concentrated in just a few areas, so some forage is overgrazed and other forage is underutilized. Um, and we've also heard from ranchers that there's a lack of technical assistance, that when they need help, when they want to get... Uh, and and natural resources conservation service, technical assistance. The USDA offers these services where people can come out and help them improve their practices, as do university extension services. They often find that there's a wait of a year or more Mm -hmm. before they can get someone out there. So when we ask, the extension services, what do you guys need? They say we need more feet on the ground, and that's what we hear from the ranchers as well. So, as you know, so when we hear these things, as we realize that as part of this process, we don't just need something like a really credible, effective, and practical standard that can serve as guidelines for improving management systems and practices on the ground in a regionally appropriate manner but we need programs that offer producers the support that they need to implement these practices uh... in a way that's feasible for their lives and and them to continue to support their families and hopefully from what we hear from the stewardship leaders, these these ranchers who have already implemented these practices, um, find that these changes are beneficial. That they improve grass productivity, improve livestock and business performance.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I know that uh, that the I think it was the NRDC that awarded uh, Will Harris from White Oak Pastures, uh, you know, an award for being a sustainable beef operator. Um, and he is also a, a, one of our proud sponsors at Heritage Radio Network, I might add, um, an absolutely fantastic guy. And I see him at a lot of sort of chef collaborative type meetings. I don't see him included in speaker rosters, uh, in conventional beef association like the Animal Agriculture Alliance or the NIAA. They don't include these guys to give talks, which I think is fascinating and says a lot about a kind of... Sort of siloed mentality in all three of the big uh, livestock sectors, whether it's pork, poultry, or or beef, um, that there's kind of like a, a. And if you read the trades, which I do obsessively, there's a kind of you know almost hysterical us against them uh, attitude, and it's like these pita lovin you know, tree hugging commie pinkos. They just want us to like throw the baby out with the bathwater and eliminate all the efficiencies we've we've got the cheapest and best beef supply in the world. Ra 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 And then, you know, and then there's nobody, as you just said, there's a vacuum in terms of providing those leadership examples, which I think starts right at the top with people like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Do you want to comment on that? How do you how do you feel about how these guys are getting their message out to um, to the the rank and file producers that are that are working with places like Cargill, Smithfield, et cetera?
2: Right, right. Well, I I mean the National Cattlemen's Beef Association to be fair is, is is you know we we hear these things from from the communications elements but they're not a monolithic organization there are voices within the National Cattlemen's Beef Association um who realize these things who who are who are very practical who who talk about how for example in many different regions there's that there's that one or there's those one or two ranchers who all the other ranchers look at their ranch and it looks so good. Mm-hmm. So, wow, you know what are they doing? In a lot of cases, people don't even know what they're doing. The rancher themselves might not even know what they're doing right, as opposed to. Uh, just good management that they've always been using that they learned and part of the key that we need is to figure out what those folks are doing right those ranches that still look good in a drought Mm -hmm. that when the drought is over and the rains return they recover quickly the cows get healthier quickly and the business profits return and which is also better for our environment because a healthier ranch means a healthier grazing land ecosystem with healthier soils that not only support healthier forage and native vegetation for livestock but also in turn support healthier wildlife communities and cleaner streams and a lot of these practices that are better and maintain forage quality also reduce methane emissions yes for example so so you know so so there's so there are elements within even the National Cattlemen's Beef Association that that realize the need to to do these things. And we find also that when we talk to a lot of the state cattlemen, Organizations, and they in turn also will tell us that you know this is not you know they're not monolithic. That that you know running an organization like this is very challenging because ranchers are just such strong, and you have It's basically an organization of thousands of very strong individuals. Um, so, as these types of uh, business cases come out and these success stories that the buyers are asking for to understand the mcdonald's the walmart to understand what they can do to credibly green their beef supply chain our hope is that uh, it's going to facilitate that that this system itself will facilitate networking and learning among ranchers who start to see and learn more about what their peers are doing to achieve uh, successes that are better for our environment, mm-hmm. that are better for our public health, and that are also better for the profits of their operations. And the industry will start to see a better way on the whole. You know, and and you have, and, and remember, this is also an industry. Something that's important to remember is that the average age of of ranchers and of ranchers in the industry is somewhere around sixty. You know, so it's, but uh, you know, so so it's a hard audience. To Change. These folks have been doing what they've been doing for a long time, and people Mm -hmm. like their habits. Um, But there is a rising tide also of younger ranchers and younger farmers who are coming up who are very interested in, you know, in, in. Uh, remote monitoring technologies and, uh, new management systems and are, are, and are engaging in programs. Uh, there's something called ranching for profit. There's these other, uh, programs out there that teach ranchers management systems that emphasize uh the importance of management planning good mm-hmm. planning monitoring the resource base kind of like a step on the scale moment like you could say oh i'm changing my lifestyle i'm going on a diet but if you don't step on the scale <laughs> you're not going to know if it's actually working yeah and you're achieving your goals and that's where and that's where monitoring comes in and it doesn't need to be you know really rigorous scientific monitoring of the type used for studies it just has to be enough know whether what these guys are doing is working to actually achieve their goals of healthier soils that in turn produce healthier vegetation that support not only your healthier cows, but also healthier streams and healthier wildlife populations.
1: Right, right. Um, so when you looked through the uh, criteria that they drafted um, with this particular group, uh, who are all you know prominent members of the status quo of commercial industrial cattle raising, and that's you know JBS Swift, Elanco, which supplies all of the antibiotics, uh, McDonald's. Which Which buys actually, I think it's only about four percent of the total beef production, and then the NCBA, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, who are, uh, you know, a powerful lobbying organization in Congress, and are uh, have traditionally been pretty conservative in changing anything that they do or making suggestions to their stakeholders. What what were the points uh, in this? in this uh, first draft of the criteria that you found uh, the most objectionable? Because they really, they do cover like pretty much all the ground. I mean, it's, it was very good. It was like, like they get to the right ideas, but then, Somehow it doesn't go. It was grazing and foraging, cropping management. There was uh, the development of more regional specific indicators, uh, preventable health care, information sharing, uh, pharmaceutical use, all of those things that we worry about. Um, what were the things that that raised a red flag for the NRDC and for your group?
2: Right, right, and 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 the way we approach it, like 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 I talked about, how we 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 underwent this really deep scientific due diligence process. The way we look at something like this is, you know, we start by looking at what is the list of scientifically proven impacts uh, in the beef supply chain, and then we ask, you know, we know knowing what the solutions are also for each of these, according to the science and what we hear from the supply chain. how many of these are addressed by the roundtable, or you know, are they all addressed, or are there gaps? Are there certain impacts that, for some reason, the roundtable didn't mention, didn't address? Right. And and it's a global, it's a global roundtable, which 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 I got to acknowledge. It's re, you know, this beef systems around the world. Uh, differ considerably even within the u.s. a beef system between you know will harris's ranch in georgia you know and some of the big famous ranches of the american west are very very different types of systems so you know so we're not so we're not looking for you know one there's there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution but still we want to see that the big impacts are addressed so with climate change for example there was nothing in there uh, as far as strategies, and there are scientifically proven strategies for reducing both enteric methane—that—that um, that is the the methane emitted through the burps of cows—and mm-hmm. um, there are strategies for for reducing that. And it's an area of rapidly advancing technology, but we know through strategies that we can reduce those emissions by improving the feed, by improving genetics, by improving grazing management by about 20 to 30%. We didn't see enteric methane mentioned in there at all. And the same thing for opportunities to reduce nitrous oxide emissions and, and nitrous oxide um is important it's three it has 310 times the global warming power of carbon dioxide and its main source is through inefficient application of fertilizer used by feed crop operations so mm-hmm. especially not only hay pasture where they fertilize but especially in the in the corn and soy in the corn production in particular Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's an area where improving efficiencies of fertilizer application will actually help reduce those nitrous oxide emissions, so that's one. Right. And another one is they talk about deforestation and reducing deforestation, which is great. But there's vague language in there where where they basically say deforestation will be re- minimized and eventually eliminated. Right. What does it eventually mean? Does it eventually mean uh, in twenty two hundred AD? Does it mean, <laughs> you know, what does it mean? You know, does it does I it, saw a know, lot it, does of it, that mean language when we're flying to work in our little jets and deals. You know, or, or, or does it or, or you know, why not set a target date? such as within five years, something that's really solid, something that we can hang our hat on, and that is a specific mm-hmm. goal that we can then work to achieve in a concrete way.
3: Right. So
2: so that's another example. And of course deforestation isn't the only type of land conversion. Well there's um, conversion just to associated crop with land beef production, you have From grasslands in the US right. being right. converted to corn production. You know, millions upon millions of acres. And when that happens that's not only uh, uh, reducing gra- our precious grassland heritage and the birds and the beautiful wildflowers that occupy our grasslands and other other wildlife, um, but it 's also uh, plowing up those soils mm-hmm. and and or just you, spraying them with roundup and planting roundup ready corn um, is and it results in emitting a lot of heat-trapping carbon pollution right. into the atmosphere from, from the soil. So there's that. And then we looked at water conservation. And while the science tells us, for example, that feedlots in particular, where you have these really concentrated areas of thousands upon a. Ap- of thousands of animals in in one area, you get some groundwater pollution. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing in these standards to address that groundwater issue. There's. We also know that uh, hay pasture, for example, is notoriously inefficient as far as its water use. I think mm-hmm. Mark Reisner, the author of Cadillac Desert, once wrote that uh, just on the million acres of hay pasture in California alone they use as much water each year as the city of Shanghai. Jeez, yeah, nice. so so it's it's absolutely insane. But there's nothing about water quantity improving mm-hmm. water use efficiency in there and nor is there anything to address um, toxic pollution uh such as uh residues of antibiotics, hormones, heavy metals, pesticides, pathogens and manure. That flow into waterways. Those are just a few examples of what we saw as gaps. Where we said, look, you know, if you're going to have credibly more sustainable beef. You know, it should at least come up with a framework for addressing all of these key impacts and not have alarming gaps. And another one is, is you know, we, we hear in the news more and more, it seems, every week about threats to the viability of our critical medicines, especially our antibiotics. That they're yes. just not working.
3: That's been a big like subject, they used yeah. to, <laughs> you
2: know. And, and it turns out that 80% of antibiotics. Are are used by in the U.S. at least are used by the livestock industry, and mm-hmm. of those, seventy percent are used non therapeutically mm-hmm. to help prevent disease and and to and to foster the growth of animals. And there was nothing, and so doctors tell us all the big medical associations are coming out saying, you know, look, we tell our patients to use antibiotics responsibly. We really need. The, the livestock industry to use antibiotics responsibly to protect these precious medicines, and yet there was nothing solid that addressed this issue in in the Global Roundtable's principles and criteria. We're going so to take a short really, break really right gap. here,
1: Jonathan, because um, got we've got to do a sponsor drop, so stay on the line, and we'll be right back with Jonathan Gelbart from the National Resources Defense Council. Thank you.
3: Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York. 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves.
0: Consider Bardwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods
1: USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA, designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and
3: provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit
1: www.considerbardwellfarm.com. We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm on the phone with Jonathan Gelbard from the National Resources Defense Council. We're talking about the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, which is an industry-wide coalition of um, stakeholders, various, uh, whether they're producers or retailers, uh, who have come together to try to put their hands around what constitutes sustainable beef uh, and what constitutes maintaining profitability within the beef industry whilst uh, mitigating some of the adverse effects that the cattle industry has on the environment. And, um, you know, Jonathan, you were just talking about antibiotics uh, in the food chain. This is something I've covered almost ad nauseum on this program um, and certainly have spoken to and written about extensively um, to the beef industry, to the primarily the beef industry. And it's, you know, the the guidelines that the FDA came out with last year or, you know, at the end of the year, which had actually come out in 2011, and then there was a great deal of hoopla and pomp and circumstance. Oh, yes, we're going to be phasing in this three-year program of voluntary withdrawal of you know, prophylactic antibiotic use. Uh, meanwhile, uh, preventable uh, disease usage uh, sort of remains on the table. Uh, and, you know, you just could swap one term out for the other. I mean, this is one area where I think um, all of the livestock industry has really dug their heels in. Um, and even the even though the drug companies, some of the drug companies have agreed to relabel their drugs as non-growth promotion, which is really what they're used for. It helps an animal muscle up faster. Um you know, they're still gonna use them the same way for, uh, for disease prevention and there is ultimately the real problem with this is that there is no monitoring system in place and that i think you're going to find one of the toughest pieces of the puzzle to solve whether it's here in the united states or around the world and i also noted with interest here um, as i looked back over this executive board there is no mention of australia which is one of the largest beef producers in the world why do you think they were left out of this organization or didn't or perhaps they didn't want to join in but certainly as a major global partner in cattle production, you know, it seems like there should be some representation there. What do you think the answer is to that? Of Australia? Yeah.
2: Oh, uh, you know, I, I, from what I understand, there is a, a, round, a regional roundtable forming within Australia. Um, otherwise, I don't know too much about it.
3: I mean, I think uh, that's fascinating. In that sense.
2: But I do know that, that, that there are meat companies here in the U.S. that, due to the fatty nature of feedlot finished beef here in the U.S., try to integrate some grass-fed Australian beef into their products to make it leaner.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know that Australia being, uh, you know, a, a major um, casualty of climate change, I mean, their drought rivals ours by far Uh, their grasslands are withering as we speak, I mean, and they're running out of water. So, I mean, maybe it's because their cattle operations are not going to be viable. I don't know. But I think it's fascinating that one of the biggest producers in the world is not a major part of this particular organization. And to me, uh, that that sort of diminishes its credibility in kind of a major way. But another thing that I wanted to get get to you with uh, before we close, because we only have about 10 minutes left, is the Global Roundtable has agreed that the next steps, and I think this is really interesting, too, will include the development of more regional specific indicators, which I think is great. Absolutely. Every region is different. Everybody has their own styles. But that we will not, quote, develop a seal certification or comparable standard for sustainable beef. So if you're not developing a standard for sustainable beef, then what are they doing? Like, what does that language mean? I don't understand that
2: right well I, I think that part of it is you know perhaps that and 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 i'm going to take a step back here and and take a look at where that falls into the green purchasing Framework that I've talked a little bit about. You know, yeah. when I think about green purchasing, and, and basically what it is, is it's something that's emerged just over the last ten or fifteen years. In addition to changing policy, or you know, or, 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 or changing management directly on the ground, as a as a way to work with companies that have big supply chains of producers mm-hmm. to achieve real, measurable environmental impacts in the health of our soils and and reduce reduce reductions of polluting emissions and the health of our water through improving practices among producers in the supply chain so you know, and and you do that by saying, okay, first, what's the problem? Two, what are the solutions? And then three comes to this question that you're posing of how can we prove it? How can companies recognize the producers that are implementing the solutions? And how can consumers in turn recognize um, those who are implementing the solutions? And when you look at, we, we did this big landscape analysis of all the big certifications out there and all the labels, and you have a lot of Sort of partial solutions out there, where you have organic, which covers feed and antibiotics use mm-hmm. and pesticide use, with some uh, with with some pasture practice recommendations that are good as well for addressing soil and water quality, but they don't address wildlife habitat and conservation of sensitive species and biodiversity and there are certain things that they leave unaddressed. You can buy grass fed beef that helps avoid uh beef produced in feedlots and those associated uh public health, animal welfare and, and environmental issues. And you can buy things like animal welfare approved beef yeah. that uh verifies that the animals pr- were produced in a way that treats the animals, you know, really credibly well. And these are all good important pieces, but there are, we found only two standards that are comprehensive, that are essentially one-stop shops, which is, you know, in a world of increasing number of eco-labels that are just con- confusing consumers beyond yes. belief. What we really need here is a one-stop shop, one simple way for buyers and consumers to know How they can, uh, recognize beef that, uh, Incredibly mitigates all of these different hotspots, and they, and it may be that the GRSB knows that there are already two functioning, comprehensive, and reasonably rigorous, and yet practical standards for cattle ranching out there, in the form of the Sustainable Agriculture Network, which is a standard used by the Rainforest Alliance around the world mm-hmm. to uh, to verify responsible cattle ranching practices, and here in the U.S. we have a small standard called the. Food Alliance and they have been certifying ranches for about ten, fifteen years now. They're not big enough yet to certify, you know, big companies like McDonald's, but they're a great partner for Rainforest Alliance. So we have these two standards and here in the US we have the Food Alliance, which would be a great model to build upon. And you know, so it may be that that they know that um there are these two wonderful models to build upon. And so that's why that's actually what led us, this process that helped us identify Rainforest Alliance and Food Alliance as these types of one stop shops, that's what led us to uh to increasingly partner with them. And you saw that they were our partners in our global roundtable of sustainable beef comments and they've just been really, really helpful in uh helping us understand the complexities and the issues and, and really how to go about addressing this question that you ask of how to develop a certification or a standard, you know, a standard in certification to to recognize credibly better sources of beef. You know, and that's and these types of standards are really the best way to guide and measure progress. Um, the best way to establish science uh, science based dialogue among stakeholders from ranchers to consumers to buyers is is a standard, and the best way for ranchers and retailers like McDonald 's or Walmart to prove to consumers that they are implementing more responsible practices is with a certification seal mm-hmm. um, so that is something that we would really like to see happen and we are working with these leading certifiers uh, on a path forward, and we'll have some more news about that in the months months to come.
1: Well, I look forward to that, because to me, it's like this is just a window dressing. It's, uh, what did you call it, tying a green bow? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I mean they can say that they're doing this, but I mean, first of all, the absence of Australia and other large beef producing countries is is a red flag to me, and secondly uh the language in these guidelines which or the criteria which by the way, anyone can look at, go to global roundtable for sustainable beef dot com and they 've got all of the people who are involved in it they have all of the the principles that they've laid out, the criteria uh and then if you go to n r d c um you know you can see Jonathan's group and Jonathan's comments uh, about some of the principles that they've laid out and and one of the other um topics that really concerned me um, or let's see, I don't know if it concerned me is just like this was another thing that really. I don't know. It just was another red flag. It says information is shared through systems implemented throughout the value chain. These systems ensure that consumers are assured, reassured as to the integrity of the beef value chain and risk is managed while, quote, risk. I mean, the whole thing was a quote, actually, while respecting confidentiality. Now. Okay, so you're saying they first of all they haven't come across with it with an actual certification program, nor will they. Um, so you and your partners are working on that. But secondly, they're saying that they and, want and I, to. And
2: I should add too that we look forward to working with. The global roundtable on this topic as well.
1: Are they? But you, I mean, are they open to listening to your suggestions? Do you feel like they're? I, I was dying to see the comments from the industry on these on these draft criteria. I mean, I can't wait until that's published, and we're going to do another show when that happens. Because I mean, as you pointed out at the very beginning of this show, the opportunity for really moving the needle forward on this whole knotty issue of livestock production around the world and the impact that it has on our natural resources is huge. And since we're not going to stop eating meat anytime soon, we really have to get this under control. And my experience with, uh, with, you know, traditional producers, which is at this point five years in, pretty extensive, is that they really have their heels dug in on a lot of these issues. And one of them happens to be this issue of transparency. And and you know, respecting confidentiality says to me that we're not actually gonna tell you what we're doing. We're just gonna expect you to believe that we're doing the right thing. Just as the ag gag laws are, it's not about, you know, the fact that we're mistreating animals. It's that, you know, we're respecting the right of the farmer to keep his own practice is private. I mean, it's like, no, 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 I would have been all over that had I been on your committee. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> I don't know what that means respect confidentiality. What are you saying? You know, didn't you find right, that a- right. alarming?
2: You, you were- know, you know, I, I, I don't really know what what they meant about that i know that for a system like this to work where you have a supply chain where animals move around a lot you're going to need some element especially at, at the regional scale where it sounds like the GRSB envision standards
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and maybe certifications coming together that you're going to need some traceability to trace an animal. Say, does it come from a cow calf operation that's well managed? Does it come from a stalker operation, which is the next stop that's well managed? And then does it come from a feedlot that is responsibly managing their, their manure, um, for example? And treating animals well and using antibiotics responsibly, and then does it does it also come from a processing operation
3: right.
2: that is meeting these criterion indicators? So you're kind of you're going to need elements of what's called traceability to make a system like this actually work. Oh, sure. So and and that's and that's and Rainforest Alliance and Food Alliance have done that. They know how to do that. They know it's possible, and they know that it's doable in a way. That that is acceptable to the producers who they've certified, obviously.
1: Well, there's a lot of these guys who are already doing it. I mean, I visited a bunch of feedlots. And they know, uh, you know, they have various, every animal is tagged with various color-coded tags that says where they have been. Like every time they move to a new place, like if you go from a ranch cow calf operation, you've got a pink tag. You go to the stalker feeder where the animal grows up a little bit more. He's got a yellow tag. He gets to the feedlot. He gets a green tag. So that sense of of traceability, it may not be completely industry wide, but as you say, responsible guys are already doing that. So it's not. That's not what worries me so much as, um, you know, as it is the the sort of the idea of respecting the confidentiality. Uh, where okay, consumers are reassured as to the integrity of the beef value chain and risk is managed while respecting confidentiality. See, that's it. Just doesn't add up to me. That's not telling me that um, that there's going to be some way for me to know not necessarily what the traceability is, but like. I don't know, what they're being fed or how much antibiotics they've received over the course of a lifetime or something like that. I don't know. You know, I just feel like that's murky. But anyway, unfortunately, Jonathan, we have to drop it here because I've run out of time. Okay. Because um, okay. <laughs> you're and sick to, of listening to, to, to me, right? Answer,
2: that's where I'll say, and that's where you need a good, credible standard with right. a seal that consumers and buyers can recognize that tells them that, that this is legitimate and credibly addresses the key hotspots of of production and the supply chain.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I, I have to applaud what you and the NRDC are doing. I think this is unbelievably important work. Um, I, I wish there were more ways that we could publicize this because I really think that um, the population, the meat eating population of this country and around the world should be going to your, to the national, to, excuse me, to the global resources defense, uh, sustainable, whatever it is, the GRSB, looking at their website, looking at those principles, and then going back to the NRDC and putting their comments, you know, in both places and saying, here's what I'm worried about. You know, here's what I want the NRDC to be looking at in in the coming drafts. So um, anyway, I thank you so much for joining me today. I thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for everything that NRDC does for the rest of us uh, Luddites out here. Well, and, I mean, um, thanks
2: so much for having me, and I'll just recommend it. And I'll just emphasize again: there's really a profound business case for this stuff. Yes. So these are practices that are really going to be beneficial not only for our environment or our public health, but they're also going to help ranchers recover from drought more quickly, yep. improve the productivity of their grass, and just improve their operations on the whole. So you know, so this there's really uh, a bright path forward, and we just need to get it implemented in a smart well-designed way that addresses a lot of these kind of key barriers and and the economic and and technical assistance barriers and gets a good system in place on the ground to enable positive change.
1: Absolutely. Jonathan, that's a great way to end the program. Thank you so much today. Thank you to Consider Bardwell, one of the greatest cheese producers in the United States. I absolutely love their products. Uh, And thanks to my engineer, Jack Inslee. We'll see you next week with another great show. Bye-bye.